This is Dune Talk, a DuneNewsNet.com production. Join us now for the latest Dune news, reactions, and lively discussions. Hey everyone, welcome back to Dune Talk. Uh, so today we're going to be continuing our uh, our movie review series where we're going to be going scene by scene, uh, talking about all the insights that we've uh, we've picked up on and all the lore after watching the movie uh, multiple times. That's the case for, for all of us. And we, we hope you're having a good week and you've also had the chance to uh, see the movie multiple times, depending on, on where you're living, of course. Uh, so I'm uh, Marcus Gabriel, um, editor at doonewsnet.com, here today with Garen. Hey, it's Garen again. Good to see everyone. Excited to dig more into this movie. Yes, Johnny Sobchak here. Uh, I feel like, I know I was on last week, but I feel like I've, I've been missing something just because there's, again, so much Dune discussion happening, I feel like, online in the in the meantime between episodes. So, yeah, I'm really excited to uh, discuss this some more because I've seen it several more times as well. Simon Dowdy here. Um excited to talk about it and once again sorry australia you still have to wait a little bit longer yeah so we're going to start with uh, just a little bit of uh, movie news dune movie news uh so the only story that, that i want to touch on uh today is that uh dune has just as of uh yesterday has has crossed the 300 million uh dollar mark at the worldwide box office uh, so that that's about uh, yeah over seventy one million is coming from uh, domestic uh, two hundred twenty nine million coming from uh, overseas and one of the things that also stands out for that is is how well received the, the movie has been doing uh, overseas especially when you look at uh, at Europe so if you like basically exclude domestic for a moment so if you take a US out of the picture uh, Dune is the fourth uh, highest grossing movie. Uh, English language movie of all of um, 2021. Uh, so it's it's behind uh, Godzilla versus Kong uh, and uh, No Time to Die and F F9. And so Dune has done better than uh, than, for example, uh, Marvel movies like uh, Shang Chi, uh, Black Widow, etc. So yeah, overseas is impressive, and we need to keep in mind that it has just released uh, in the domestic box office around uh, 12 days ago. Uh, of course, there's going to be some some additional challenges. So, uh, Johnny, I want to hear from from you. Like, wh- what does this uh, this milestone mean, mean to you? Yeah, I, I mean, this is really good uh, by all accounts. And Warner Brothers, uh, the presidents of distribution, uh, domestic and international, both made some statements. Uh, you know, yesterday when it crossed 300 million, just discussing how well it's being received and how well you know audiences are responding to it, and uh, you know, clear indications that they are going and seeing it multiple times in theaters, um, which is always a very positive, strong word of mouth, um, you know, here in the U.S. and overseas as well, especially in Europe, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, this is just, it's 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 really good. It's uh, 300 million in the bag. You know, Villeneuve's biggest film ever. Uh, I believe it's in about a month's time is when it's going to be released in Australia and New Zealand. And uh, Australia is not a, an especially small market for movies. We'll see what um, you know, how people turn out for it, uh, you know, all things considered with the pandemic and, and et cetera. But um, yeah, I think it's going to definitely get across 350 million. We'll see how close it gets to 400 million. It's going to be close, um, but I, wherever it rests, it's going to have a good total. It's going to be uh, impressive and better than probably what most people thought, especially with the effects as you know, of the pandemic and the HBO max day and date uh, deal. Um, and also, 
we know that uh, it, as right as of right now, it's past 70 million in the U.S. It's coming up on its uh, third weekend, and it's going to lose its IMAX screens to Eternals. It already lost its other a lot of its other premium format uh, screens as well. So this is going to be purely regular screens. But I'll be curious to see, you know, especially another fa- thing to factor in as far as box office in the U.S. is in you know a couple of weeks after it you know after this coming weekend when it loses its HBO Max um, availability if there's going to be any bump in the numbers, if anyone's going to, you know, go to the theater instead to see it or continue to go to theater now that they won't have access to it on HBO max. So I think honestly, it has a really good shot at crossing hundred million domestic, which would be a great marker. I think that presumably everyone's probably happy with it. And we already know we're getting the sequel regardless, but everything after this now is just, you know, more the cherries on top of what we've already gotten uh, just giving them more confidence and, and more reason to be excited and happy about the performance of this movie and, and how much they're willing to commit to a part two. And then, you know, the franchise as a whole. So really great. I'm, you know, I'm excited and, and pleased and keeping an eye on, on the numbers. And, and looking at uh, China specifically. So that was uh, like over uh, 33 million. And uh, that was after the, the domestic, it was the, the highest uh, uh, performing uh, market overseas. Uh, but compared to what some other movies that have done this, this year in, in China, for example, Godzilla versus Kong, like do you, feel that the Chinese box office was disappointing in any way? Not especially. I mean, it's it's not like, as you pointed out, it's not up to the par set by some other films this year in particular. Um, but it's also the first entry in a new franchise, you know, comparing it to something like Godzilla versus Kong, which is, of course is, I mean, Godzilla is always going to be big regardless, uh, King Kong as well. You put those two in a movie and it's already in a, a franchise that is a direct continuation of some of recent uh, films that have come out in the last few years. Um, that that makes sense. I think it, but comparing it to stuff like, you know, Blade Runner 2049 or um, the recent Star Wars movies, how some of those have done, you know, especially The Rise of Skywalker, because that's the most recent example. Uh, it's done better than both of those. So I would say given the genre and the the, the pace of it, the tone of it, I would say it's a good, it's a decent, you know, first entry. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because uh, look, looking at some of the, the themes of the of the book and especially what what came out in the, in the movie, you know, like where, where you have the, the emperor in, in power and you have like Jessica being a concubine, it does have parallels to uh, to a lot of themes that are popular in, in other Chinese stories. So mm. I'm wondering if, if you know, they, they could lean into that more in, in the marketing. But yeah, ho- hopefully, uh, you know, that, that, that after the release that uh, and leading up to part two, there will be some some further uh, marketing opportunities uh, there as well. Yeah, stay, stay tuned as uh, yeah, we'll be keeping up to date on the, the remaining uh, box office progress as well as the home releases as those are confirmed. So um, because we have a lot of uh, material to cover in the movie, let's go straight into our uh, scene-by-scene breakdown. Uh, so uh, last week we had uh, gone through the Gondra Bar scene uh, because uh, director Denise Villeneuve had uh, you know done his own breakdown. So we, uh, we got to... Uh, getting some of his, his insights and how he approached that scene. Uh, so we're going to pick up uh, right after that. So um, the the test has been been completed, uh, and um, uh, Lady Jessica and Reverend Mother Moham walk out, and it's basically you see that the Ben Jesuit have have arrived, and they're basically left almost uh, immediately. <laughs> so that, that, that's uh, much quicker than how it took place in in the book, because of course in the in the book, like there there had been like a, a day. 
in between. So they had arrived and like they had met, uh, the Reverend Mother had met Paul and then like he, he had some time to prepare for the test. Uh, so we, we had um, uh, first uh, the Reverend Mather and Jessica were, were talking and, you know, Jessica was uh, having a discussion, did you have to go th that far? And the Reverend Mather was, was emphasizing uh, about that. Yeah, she, she's trained him in, in a way. So he, you know, he doesn't get a, a free pass out of this. He has to go through the, the same testing proce procedure. And then we had... Um, after the reverend mother had, had left, and by the way, you, you hear that, that really like eerie music with, with the, the strong female vocals as, as the ship, ship leaves. Uh, and you have Paul and, uh, and uh, he's, he's out there in, in the rain. Uh, it's a re really striking scene and Jessica um, uh, talks to him. And, and, and there we, we get a lot of the introduction of like the, the concept of the, of the quiz at Hadarak and, and what that means. So I'll start with you, uh, Garen, like looking at how they, they handled the, the explanation here. Uh, what, what did you think from the scene? Yeah, uh, so I really, on my fourth time watching this, I really clued into this scene to, to get a sense of what kind of information uh, Villeneuve is trying to make sure the audience gets here. And I thought they did a really masterful job of, of getting a lot of key points that Jessica was supposed to have, you know, only daughters, um, and and I, I, I've been to the movie now with people who don't know the book as well as me. And it wasn't until the second viewing that these people close to me actually caught on to all of that. So as we've talked about on this podcast before, the first time you're, you're sort of overwhelmed. But the second time, these pieces start to fit together. So I love in this scene. First of all, I think it's a it's a beautiful scene where where uh, the Reverend Mother's walking, walking ahead of Jessica. Jessica's, Jessica's trying to keep up. There's this sort of reprimand by, by the, the Reverend Mother to say, you know, you weren't supposed to have a son um, and, and really just sort of bringing this all together that Jessica is playing a pivotal role and she hasn't followed the rules here. Um, I, I think there's a lot of symbolism of this um, where Jessica is, she's one of the Benny Jesuit, but it's like she's being left alone, left to her own devices now. Um, and, and I just think there's a lot of key points happening in this scene. I think Jessica's really humbly, she's, she's, she's really kind of her head's down. She's looking down, but my favorite part of this segment is where she turns and then she's startled because she sees Paul kind of a, a little ways in the mist. And I love the way that was set up. I love the distance. I love the look on Paul's face because Paul is basically looking to his mother who he's trusted up until this very day that he was going to be taken care of by the woman he trusts. And now he's looking at her skeptically, like, what, what have you done here? What is this? There's a plan here. I thought I was your son. You know, I, I just think this is such a powerful, a powerful scene. I agree. It's probably one of the top five scenes for me and especially the turn from Jessica to Paul kind of caught me off guard. I was like, whoa, Paul's being a little bit creepy right there. But he does want to know, like, what just happened? What did I just go through? You know, what is this test? Who are these people? And I think the storytellers, Denis and the whole entire team does such an amazing points, giving you the bullet points of what could have been 20 minutes of dialogue. But it's just like, this is what happened. When you have a girl, you give us a boy, you messed up, Jessica, we're mad at you. What, there's a program? Am I the chosen one? Is this what my destiny is? But so 
we've been saying for such a long time that this movie is so slow and given those characters those moments but this feels like a natural dialogue like paul's angry at his mom right now like at this point i wonder if this is where he starts not trusting her and you know we'll go into it later when we go to the tenth scene but when he's like you did this to me you know you're betting jesuit's way and i think this is the beginning of him being like what do you even care about me or am i just a science project in a weird way so it is definitely amazing rebecca ferguson just her acting even without saying words just the impression on her face is just stunning like i have it on pause right now and it just breaks my heart when I see her because I actually feel bad for Jessica at this point. And yeah, just just thinking from from when uh, when Paul woke up that that night and like uh, you know his mother tells him get, get dressed and like uh, he he goes and sees Doctor Yui and then he he's he's talking to her before the Ganja Bar scene and like he's like wait how does the Reverend Mother know about my dreams you know and she she doesn't answer it's just, just like from from that point I think he's he's definitely lost uh, lost trust and I feel it's it's been been a painful experience for for both of them. It's definitely one of my favorite parts of the movie because it's there's a lot going on there between the characters and internally, exter- externally. Um, yeah, the the part where he does before the Gomtra Bar test, where she he's like, how, how does she know about my dreams? And she just like doesn't say anything, like because uh, just earlier on in the movie before the the ceremony, she was like, I have more dreams, like it's you know. Because you know, it seems like she's doing this out of, you know, general interest or, or you know, out of some sort of feeling for her kid. Um, but it's actually like, oh, I'm I'm just probing to find out if, if something needs to be done, if we, if we can move ahead with this uh, this test where you might die during it. Um, but hey, aftermath of the test and and what's going on between Paul and Jessica? Yeah, that moment. Um, the very first time I watched it, that moment where she turns around and she looks up and she's like kind of startled and Paul is standing there. <laughs> That's one of my favorite moments. One of my favorite shots in the entire movie, actually, because it is so perfect and totally illustrates just so much about this character of Paul, of the relationship between the two at this point where it's going. Uh, it is, it's just the 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 lighting and the mist and the his face is like cloaked in like this darkness. It's just so so good. And then and then of course this dialogue, this back and forth. It is a lot to take in, especially if you have no reference to it with the previous film or the books. But I think it does a really great job. They do so such a good job with the screenplay in making things succinct and not going into too much detail, not completely overwhelming someone, but making it clear enough where you know this okay this is what she's saying he's supposed to be this is what the Bene Gesserit are trying to do uh and that is important because that is uh you know that goes a long way in understanding who Paul is going to be and why he's going to be that way and how it's come to that that point um I also love the line I've been thinking about it recently I think maybe after the last time I saw it, but the the line where Reverend Mother, I don't know if this is in the book or not, but she says that their plans are measured in centuries, I think is it what the mm-hmm. how the line goes. And if that's not in the book, I mean that's a perfect distillation of the Bene Gesserit and their plotting and their planning and their entire, you know, methodology behind what they do. Um, 
that that's just such a great, great line. So I really like that. I really loved, I mean, Charlotte Rampling, just unbelievable. And just the small amount of screen time we get, I, I can't wait to see more of her. Um, you know, all things to plan, we are going to see a, a good amount more of her. So um, yeah, I really love this exchange. I mean, that, that stretch of time, I mean, I love the whole damn movie, I mean, let's be real, but that stretch of time with the Gamjabar test and the leading up to it when he gets woken up and then the test itself, and then this kind of fallout and seeing the emotional, you know, uh, um, distress between these two characters, especially Paul Chalamet just crushes it. And, and his, like the way he, he feels crushed and he looks crushed by what just happened. Um, yeah, I, I loved this because it was it's pivotal. It's really pivotal. So I thought they could really couldn't have asked for you know a better job. I thought they did a did a really brilliant job with it. And uh, yeah, to, to the point earlier about uh, the Ben Gesserit, because just in that one conversation, like I mean, we haven't seen much of Ben Gesserit like as a whole as a faction. I mean, we, we've just met uh, two of their their members, well, three of their members uh, in total. But that conversation first between uh, uh, Jessica and the Reverend Mother, and then. Uh, between her and Paul, you, you get to understand that these are people who are uh, women who are operating like in the shadows of an imperium. They're, they're controlling the, the politics, but then at the same time, they're, you know, preparing to whip the way for the Quizus uh, Hadrach. Um, and also the, the point that Reverend Mother made there about uh, that they've done all that, all, all that they can for them on, on Arrakis, that's going to be referenced in a bit, but that's, that's an important point that we'll, we'll get to. Uh, and then after this, we, we get straight into like a, a really um, uh, atmospheric, uh, like really visually stunning uh, montage, basically, when when they're departing from, from Caledon and it's obviously focusing on, on Paul, like he just had, you know, his, um, I guess, his, his past 15, 15 years of not really comfort in a way, because he, he has been trained in, in the ways of, of fighting, in the ways of the Bene Gesserit and to become a duke, but like, this is the first time that I guess the rug's been pulled out from, from underneath him and he's really like faces uncertainty. Uh, so you really sense that as, as you know, he, see, he sees these, uh, these scenes like the, the Trades frigates like rising ab above, the, uh, above the sea. Uh, Simon, what did you think of that, uh, that scene? Like basically the montage departing from Calum? I think this is perfect example why if you can go to the theater, if you can still see it in IMAX, that shot makes every Star Destroyer in Star Wars look like a micro-machine. It's just beautiful. And one little shot of him holding water. Like, when you first see the movie and you don't know that much about it, you're just like, okay, he's holding water. You know, he lives by a river, I mean, like an ocean. But that scene is so crucial for later because when we start talking about the spice harvest, when he looks at the sand, it's very much the yang and yang. Even just the coloring is very much, right now it's that kind of green, dark. And then when we get to the sand stuff, it'll be more bright and more sunny. I love that montage. It's simple, but it's also Paul in a way saying goodbye to this world that he knows and hello to the unknown future. I think it's a gorgeous scene. And the score, once again, in the theater, just makes it, so epic it feels like that big scale like i don't personally talk about the music as much as you three do but hans zimmer just amazing i i love this scene because it feels like the way they used to make movies 50 years ago it it gives you a sense of pondering on what this character just experienced and 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 timothy chalamet does a great job of doing that you can just see 
I don't know how he does it, but you can actually see on his face that he's, he's processing all this. He's okay. We're leaving Caladan. This is my home. What am I in for here? What, what is going to be happening to my world? And, and I just think, I love the pacing of this. I know to maybe my 15 year old son, this is a slow part of the film. He didn't say that, but I'm just guessing because this is not typical of a lot of big epic movies that we have today. But I love this scene because it's giving me a little bit of time to process and empathize with with Paul and and what he's going to have to deal with here. And and just these, you know, these amazing, you know, epic shots of these these freighters coming out of the water, which I just think is such a cool idea, you know, that they're they're parked under the, the ocean or whatever. I just think that's so cool. But it's really that I don't care. I mean, there's the cool factor going on, but what I care about is Paul. And that's what is making, I believe this movie works so well is because I'm thinking, what is this kid thinking? What is he going through? What, what, what is weighing so heavily on his mind? You know, going back where you were talking, Garen, I was watching it. Thank you, HBO Max. Um, and it was that whole entire scene also with them packing the bowl again, you know, and just there was a great interview that was released earlier this week or last week, I don't know, with Joe Walker about one of his favorite shots in the movie. And it's just Oscar Isaac's hand, you know, on Rebecca Ferguson's neck, kind of like, we got this. Everything's going to be okay. You know, we get Paul, who is our main character, but we also get his parents and seeing like, we're getting ready. We're also, like we've talked before, Duke Alito knows like his time's running out soon. And I think Jessica is starting to be worried, like, what did I just put Paul through? You know, it's just a beautiful montage without making it such like an 80s Rocky train sequence. You know, yeah, I agree with you, Garen. It's classic filmmaking 101. I loved the really, I think it was like the more recent couple of times that I've seen the movie where I thought about it. But when it comes to Paul, he's on the cliffside. And he's like sitting there and he's like, it's like, he's just picking grass. It seems like. And I, I really love that because it's like, if you were about to leave your planet <laughs> like forever and you were never going to see grass again or a tree or anything like that, like, what would you do? I, I mean, I, honestly, I might be out there just rolling around in the grass. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, I, I mean, just the tiny little, that, that kind of, and in his eyes, Garen pointed out the, the, in his face, you can see that he's kind of like really processing like, wow, this is actually like, you know, he like kind of looks up and he's kind of like squinting and he knows like the ships are coming up. Like we're, you know, we're getting ready to leave, but just the way, you know, they're emerging like these, you know, uh, I think I wrote my review, like these le Leviathans like out of the, the sea. And it, it's like this, it, it's, you know, Leto was talking about, air power sea power that's how they've been ruling and this is like you know a perfect uh you know example of the last thing that i always note is that that feeling at the end where there's the sunset and uh that's really like the last thing you see and then it cuts to to the uh the highliner above um arrakis and it's coming out it's like that the sun is like the last thing that the bright orange on the horizon and then it cuts to you know arrakis like just the orange red you know globe there at the end it's uh it's just a great like it's just such a great transition i could you know they couldn't really have done a better job and it's funny because i knew i knew that the the, the ships were going to come out of the water like we had seen that or at least heard about it um 
and it's still like it's still like awe inspiring especially as you said if you're seeing it in IMAX like that is a reason to go see it like just for that sequence alone it's just so good with the sound the music and the visual and we were talking about the the symbolism of course like Paul puts his, his hand in the, in the water and then that's later on in Sparse Horrors for scene but also that that walk uh, along the um, the the, sh the shore uh, that, that's also like really symb symbolic in terms of this being like a transition in his life because that's where you know like the 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 sand meets the meets the water like the you know like the land meets the meets the sea uh, and th this is representing the transition that they're literally just about to jump on and I know that that was one of the the final scenes they they, they shot so it's uh, yeah just just so much meaning packed into this just a uh, one one minute scene. And then, of course, we do have the the rival on, on Arrakis, and that basically does go really quick. Like we we don't get any like time with them traveling. It's just basically, you know, they we we see these frigates uh, leaving, and then we we basically see these frigates now coming out of the Highliner and descending straight um, in, into Arrakis, and we we see that from the um, uh, from the bottom perspective. So it's a really impressive sight seeing the, these. Uh, these frigates coming down from from the sky, like uh, almost like re religious uh, uh, symbols in in a way. Uh, so so that, that that was interesting, and you, you have the the bright uh, sunlight. Uh, so, uh, Garen, starting with with you, how do you think they handled this this actual the transition from one one planet to to another and that arrival sequence? Yeah, so this is interesting because. Um... There, one of my favorite parts, and this is kind of funny, but one of my favorite parts of Lynch's Dune is the transition of the Atreides ships into the Highliner and then the arrival on Arrakis, which um, has been criticized because the on on, on uh, his on Lynch's film, the Highliners just don't look very realistic. It just looks like a painting and. But there's there's something about that whole transition of all of these ships getting into this big, uh, this big guild Highliner, and then and then the whole folding of space thing. And so I thought that watching Villeneuve's version, I was gonna if it didn't explain to me or elaborate on what this transition would be like of, of folding space and and traveling, you know, uh, millions of light years in a second. But I love the way Villeneuve has done this. In fact, the the Highliner, it's almost like it's a wormhole kind of a thing because. It's not like there's this folding space action that we see as the audience. Maybe it's maybe it's happening in there somewhere, which which it is, I guess, in the book. But it's like it's not really this transitionary process that I'm going to dig into mentally. But I just love how elegant the whole process is. Very different than what Lynch envisioned. But there's just something so elegant and beautiful about it. I. I, I'm glad he didn't spend time going into the process of folding space. You know, it's interesting when we see them land, when you were talking, Marcus, that's really a religious kind of thing. It could be, you know, the angels from above. And also, if you look at those chips, they're really designed like crosses and also chess pieces. Because Dune is one giant chess game, you know, between the different houses. I like that they didn't spend time explaining folding space, like you said, Garen, because I feel like most people would be like, what, huh? I, I'm lost. Okay, I'm done now. You know, if you want to know, cool, read the book. It's been around for a while, you know, but it's also just a nice transition. So smooth. Joe Walker is my hero this week, by the way. 
but in this first movie, you like you don't need to see any of that. Like we don't we understand what's happening. Um, you know, they've they've said in some dialogue earlier on, Joe Walker's voice talks about, you know, how the spice is used to navigate the stars and things like that. Um, that's that's all we need. I think later on we can get more into the navigators and maybe we'll see inside of a highliner, but that was not something that I felt was necessary. Would it have been cool? Sure. Um, there was a there was probably dozens of things that would have been cool to see or include but for what we needed the necessity and and to keep things simple i thought that was a good choice and um of course on the navigator front the little tease we got with the you know the uh the herald of the change was enough for me and, and weird and strange enough um i thought I am very disappointed on the lag of pugs again because in the Lynch movie they're holding a pug. Just saying, release the pug cut. You know, I had a memory, you guys, of uh, being a, a teenager, and and I remember when Dune came out on video cassette, and I was at a friend's house. I think it was his birthday party or something, and his mom rented Dune, and I remember my friends who, you know, we we were we were all like jocks and, you know, we, we weren't that much into things like that, but I was, I had read the books and or at least I'd read the first book. And I remember my friends were into this film until the folding space scene. <laughs> and then they all checked out. They were just like, what is happening here? <laughs> you know? And so I wonder if Bill never remembered that and was like, wait a minute, let's have some compassion on the audience and not overwhelm them with folding space. Let's just have a beautiful transition, get them to Arrakis, and we can explain that later. So I think it was a genius creative move. The, the frigates, they, they land on the ground. And, and as, as it happened, you, you see the scale because you see these, these masses of, of people who look like ants, like, uh, you know, waiting for the frigates to arrive. And, um, and then you, you have, of course, that, that, uh, that scene, like when, you know, they're standing in front of the door and it's, and it's opening. And there's the obvious parallel uh, with... Uh, uh, the uh, the film Arrival. If you haven't seen uh, Denis Villeneuve's previous films, like the, definitely like uh, check out Arrival. Like that, that's uh, there, there's there's so much insights there, and it's also a film that, that gets a lot into, into dreams. So so highly recommended. Uh, and then so basically you, you have all that that sunlight. You know, so it's really contrast from like you know what you had on on Caledon, like cloudy, uh, like uh, storm stormy nights, and here is like this this bright sunlight, and you see it shining in in, in Paul's face. And there's also a lot of intimate moments in that in that scene because you see like the the details of like uh, Lido uh, going to hold Jessica's hand. You have uh, uh, Lido; he's also as the door opens, he looks back at at Paul. So so there's basically a lot lot of uh, yeah interaction between the, the characters uh, going going on there. And then you have um, uh, Gurney who's who's reciting his, his poetry and, and starts starts the ceremony. And I have to say like talking about the the, the score again like. Uh, this, this whole piece sometimes is, is playing in, in, in my my head like just uh you know the the, the tradies uh music and the the, the march <laughs> yeah it, it really stays with me what is arrakis like well as soon as those doors go down i mean i love the, <laughs> their facial expressions like the squinting in their eyes and like the, the way the wind is hitting them and like their hair is flowing and her her headdress is, is uh, flowing with her veil um I love that. And then the, the sand, there's that shot of the ground as the ramp is going down and then the, the sand and, and dirt just comes, you know, flying in. Um, yeah. It's a whole new world for sure. And there's I, the Gurney quote. I love that. I love that they included that. 
um, and it is kicked off by the Atreides bagpipes, as you mentioned. And that's, you know, so, so closely associated with this movie now and so memorable. And it's so funny because, you know, it's actually in the score. Like it's, it's, it starts out as this, um, you know, actual music in the world of the movie. And then the score comes in and that's on layered on top. And now is, is even heavier and more, more epic. Um, But yeah, they come out. Um, I love, there's just so many little details, the way Gurney stops and, and, uh, grabs Jessica's hand to like help her get down. Um, the way Paul sees through fear and goes running after him, gives him a hug. Um, it it just, it's exactly what I wanted to see. There's a, there's like some level of like pomp and circumstance to it, but it, it doesn't really last that long. Cause you know, for example, they start walking toward the ornithopter and, like her, her dress is like just getting whipped in the wind. <laughs> like it, it, it was like kind of this, like, it's kind of beautiful, but also at the same time, it's like, this is like the conditions are rough. Um, and it just has this, you know, I've seen some people, this is something that has been spoken about since the very first images came out of the movie. Uh, and then of course the first trailer and the first footage we got, uh, it became more of a, of a talking point, but the color that they chose to go with uh, for the, for Arrakis, for the sand, for the world, you know, they use like a, basically like a bleached like LUT for the film um, as far as the color grading goes. And I just thought that was so smart. I just, I love that so much more than if they had tried to do like orange, (laughs) like, you know, some similar to like the David Lynch film, for example, or like the Martian from Ridley Scott a few years ago. Like, I, I, I'm glad that they stay away from that. Um, for one, it just looks more natural, I guess. Um, of course, it's an alien world, but it, it just looks like more believable, like something like I could associate with uh, that I've seen in real life. Um, but also it just has like, it just seems so sterile. And like, you know, uh, I think it was Greg Fraser talked about like, you believe that this world has no water anywhere. Like there is none to be found in the, in the ground, in the sky. Um, I don't know if anyone else has mentioned this or seen it or or seen it elsewhere or said it, but there's not a single cloud in this movie. (laughs) That's like a very minor detail probably. And most people probably won't even notice that, but it's just like a, it's just like a gray, clear sky. There's just nothing. There's no vapor in the air. There's no, you know, condensation. And again, just a little minor detail when they're flying across in the ornithopters, you can see that you can sense that. Um, and of course the, I think one of the, the key takeaways as far as building the world in this scene um, is the uh, Lisan al-Gaib uh, myth that is quickly introduced. Um, you know, they're on, they're on the ground for about five seconds and then we're hearing the chants and the, the cries and the calls uh, and the back and forth between Paul and Jessica, again, you're feeling some of the tension from the previous scene where you know he finds out that he's part of some plan uh, and that there's things going on that are above his understanding or control and this myth is part of that and jessica pretty much admits yeah the ben and Jesuit have been at work here um up to no good in other words and she doesn't you know they're laying the path or you know clearing the way whatever you want to call it and Paul, you know, as he does here and there throughout the movie, kind of calls it out or like is 
becoming more aware of the, the issues behind this. Um, and, you know, as he says, I, I love this line. I mean, it perfectly fits, but they're just seeing what they've been told to see. Uh, and that is what, that is what the Bene Gesserit did. They planted the, the signs so that when these people show up, that's what they uh, believe is happening. Um, and it just, again, it just builds out the world a little bit. It starts to build up this myth of Paul uh, and his mother. And uh, that's, that's really important. And it, I thought it was done really effectively. And uh, the costumes in the scene, of course, are amazing. Um, I think that goes without saying her gown is amazing. The headdress, the jewelry, their armor. Again, this, that was kind of like a talking point. Some people didn't like it that much. I have thought it's amazing the entire time. And it looks even better in the movie. Um, the military dress that Paul, like through fear wearing, I, I just thought it was all great. Um, really, it, it's believable, but it still feels alien and strange. And especially when those ornithopters start up, Garen's probably going to talk more about that in a second, but it's it's so good. Ugh. I agree with Johnny about the Lux. So the Lux is a way that you can color correct something in Premiere or Final Cut or any editing program. If anyone doesn't know, like I can make this podcast look like like dune i can there there is a lux out there right now that someone made um but i love the arrival i love that they see um Thor, Thor, howard and the stare between jessica and him if you know a little bit more about what happens in the book and sadly we got some of that cut in the movie but that stare is just whew, that seems intense and jessica's wardrobe the costume design like the Atreides armor, I'm very hit or miss on it, but Paul and Jessica just look like royalty, especially if you look like at her handmaidens, just helping her carry that long dress. I was like, eat your heart out, Padme. You know, like, this is, this is royalty at its best right now. And it's just so beautiful. And you're right. They're already going, oh, there he is. He's the one that's going to, bring everything back to Arrakis. And Paul's like, no, I'm just a kid. Leave, leave me alone. You know, he's, it's so interesting when you really break down Paul, it's like, you have all this pressure on you, but you're like, no, just leave me alone. I'm, I, I'm just a kid. Like, don't put this pressure on me. And you see it more and more. The more I think we talk about, it and we watch this movie, it is a gorgeous scene and the scale of it. Once again, IMAX. Um, I've seen this on my ipad i've seen it on my iphone i've seen it on you know tv at home whatever it's just a scale it's breathtaking and when they open that door when you first get introduced to arrakis i feel like you're like whoa am i gonna get sand in my eyes because it just feels the win is something just right there on the arrival it's it's great and i agree with you marcus people should watch all the Neve movies, especially Arrival. Like, I wasn't a big fan of it the first time I saw it, but the more I think about it now, I'm like, I need to go back and rewatch that. Going to the point about uh, yeah, the listen al the the voice from the, from the other world, and like how you know we we discussed earlier in the conversation between uh, Ben Jesuit and uh, uh, the Reverend Mother Mahayim and, and Jessica um, about how they've been preparing like uh, Arrakis uh, for them. They've done all they they can, and wh while some uh, you know, for example, the 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 Lynch film, like um, 
like left left ambiguity around there. Like here, it's, it's clear from from the beginning that you know, like Paul is is not uh, you know a messiah figure. He, he's he's very special. Like he he has these uh, like special abilities. He has the the, the dreams, and that's going to be become more and more important. But like this this whole um, mythology and like the superstition that that that's all it is. Like he's he's not like really a messiah who's who's coming down to save him. And and I love how they they just like clarify that right out of the bat and that becomes uh, more important as, as the movie uh, progresses. Yeah, Marcus, I think that is a really, really important point because sometimes I think people even misinterpret uh, Frank Herbert's book. They, they think he's actually saying, um, you know, look, look at what a real Messiah can do and what the implications of all that are. His whole point is we need to be really careful who we think our leaders are. Right. That so establishing this within the first few, you know, 20 minutes or so of the movie, I think is really a a great decision by Villeneuve because uh, you're right. Lynch's movie left that really hanging out there even till the end of the movie. Right. I mean, you're like, okay, this guy really is a god, I guess, but that's not the case. And to have have us know Paul, like you were saying, Simon, as this young teenager who's who's just trying to process what's happening and his relationship to his mom. But then we immediately see these, these uh, indigenous people of Arrakis and they're pointing, they're saying, Lisa and Al-Gayib, they're, they're saying, there's the mother and there's the son, that's the Messiah, right? But we know, even someone who hasn't read the book, they're putting it together to say, wait a minute, this is, this is all a fabrication. This is all superstition, like, like the conversation between Jessica and Paul. So, um, this is a beautiful scene. It's an, an excellent transition into being introduced to this world. It's world building at its best, but it's also got really important points that establish who the character is and what this Messiah myth is all about. Yeah, and then here uh, you get the, as saying, the introduction to the to the world. So you they get into the ornithopters and they're they're flying towards. Uh, Eric Keen and like that, that scene, like see, seeing it, um, you know, especially the first time, it's 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 really impressive because you're you're seeing them them going over the, these cliffs and you know it, it's and it's the expedition is quite natural. I I felt in, in in this case, you know, it's explaining, you know, this is this is what you would want to know when you're when you're arriving in a planet, you know, that you know it's a population center. There's a shield wall that that's protecting it from from the from the sandworms, and you know that they want to get out of the, the heat as, as soon as possible. Uh, so of course, Garen, I want to hear your perspective on this approach of of Arakeen and the, the ornithopter flight. Okay, so I'm not going to go off like I usually do on the ornithopters, but I, I just want to say though that the ornithopter test is what helped me compare two different IMAX screens sound systems. So the first <laughs> IMAX screen I saw this on, this first scene where we're flying over Arakeen and we've got you know where where the ornithopters pass right by the camera and you, you hear all that. It was not thundering in my chest. The second time I went to a different, it was a, a little bit of a larger screen. It had it's both IMAX, but it had been around longer. And that scene was just thunderous. I mean, you could just feel the ornithopter engines and the, the thudding of the wings in your chest. So my, my overall impression of this scene is it just looks very real. I mean, I have a most audience people today do have a discerning eye. We can we can see when something's just not quite you know real. That's CGI. It, it just stood right out. This really felt, 
it, in fact, it kind of reminded me of Lord of the Rings, where where a lot of these, like uh, you know, the Orthanc and some of these things were like actual. Uh, they were they were actually real models, and they they filmed it that way so that it looked totally accurate. I don't think they did that with uh, Dune, but it really looked authentic to me, and it felt like this is a real city. It's it's you know, there's not a lot of there's not windows as we can see. It's it's like everything's like bunker style, you know, to survive the incredible storms and and just the harshness of this planet. But overall, I just I totally bought into it, and the the camera angle, the way it shifts as the ornithopters kind of come in to to part, I just and you see you see the line of uh, palm uh, uh, palm trees kind of whipping in the wind as those as those ornithopters are coming by. I just thought, wow, I don't know who's doing the CGI. I don't know if it was Weta or who it was, but wow. It, I was believing it the whole way in. My first reaction of Eric Keane was, holy crap, it's big. Like, and I love like what you were saying, Marcus. It's showing us, hey, there's going to be this whole entire town, this whole entire compound, I guess you can even say, that's getting protected because of the shields, because of the sandworms and, you know, possible attacks, spoilers, right? But when you go back later and you see this movie for a second time and after the attack you're like whoa there was a lot of damage because they had to get pretty far into the city to hit you know the main the main place where they're staying but it's the scale i agree with both of you you know it is the epicness of lord of the rings lawrence of arabia of seeing this is a world that's lived in not just hey look at these pretty cg shots cool Oh, wait, they're all in night, like Coruscant on Star Wars. But it's, once again, it's seen all the little details, the palm trees. Like, I didn't notice the palm trees until you mentioned it. I also love that you see what could be Fremen's up on a mountain looking. You know, it's those little details, and it's just the scale. This is where, you know, the first 30, 40 minutes of the movie, you know there's a big scale. But now we're really introduced to Arrakis and the scale of the, the IMAX experience. I, I think the, the only thing that I would have wanted to see here was like actually like some some shots of like how life was on the streets. Like I really hope that they have the opportunity to do that, to do that in, in part two because here of course you see, you know, this is a big population center but you don't actually see any of the, you know, the, the city life uh, that, that would have been would, would have been interesting to see. Really it's one of the most impressive shots in the movie to me because it does, I mean, it's this huge long aerial shot and presumably this is all computer generated, not, not real, but it, it certainly feels and looks very real. And just the way they are managed to capture the scale of everything, because that courtyard, or at least where the palm trees are, we see that, uh, you know, a couple scenes later when Paul's walking through there and it's huge. I mean, it's a very large wide space and we all see it later in the movie when they're executing the soldiers Um and so you know how big it is when you're down there, but when they come flying in like that, I mean, it looks so tiny. I mean, it looks like a parking lot. Um, and so that was, uh, I thought they did a great job just establishing the scale. And then the one other little detail that they um, did apart from the Fremen on the mountainside, which I thought, again, that was a great little, little thing was the, um, and it's something they established as soon as they got off the ship, which is that wind and the heat and the sand blowing when they're flying across, 
the, the wind is just whipping and you can see it's like this constant, like almost like a mist of like sand flying off of the like rooftops and the, the covered streets and, and, uh, you know, walkways of the city. And when it, the camera, you know, turns around at the end and it kind of looks back the way it came and you see the Blade Runner-esque uh, palace that they are staying in, there's a, a ton of sand like accumulate on there and it's just kind of blowing off like constantly. And it just adds a little bit of like tangibility to it that, you know, maybe you wouldn't have noticed or thought about if it wasn't there and it was just not no, no wind, no sand like blowing in the air, but because that, that little bit of atmospheric, you know, particle effect that they have going on, it, it just adds like that little extra bit. So that's something that I, I probably thought about the most uh, seeing it a few times now. One other thought, you guys, about uh, the streets of Arakeen. Um, I don't it's know. It's a great album, great. by the way. The streets of Arakeen. The streets of Arakeen <laughs> is a great punk album. Are you serious? <laughs> Not real? No. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought it was one of your albums in your in your vinyl co- collection, Simon. <laughs> um, no. Villeneuve. He he actually says how he didn't want to have this look like Star Wars, right? And the risk you run is having any shot or image that immediately takes us to Tatooine. And I wonder if maybe there was a decision to avoid the streets of Arakeen kind of shot because it might feel a little bit like Tatooine or Anchorhead or, you know, and I I just thought of that as as a possibility. Um, But I think we will because it is in the books and it is a sprawling city so, so I think, you know, we'll, we'll see that later on. And the thing, the way they really get away with it in this iteration is that the streets are covered. So it's all stone or cement or whatever it is atop. And there's like, I guess, certain elements potentially where that aren't covered that we see later on in the movie. One example, the really the best look at a street that we get in the movie is when Duncan is flying through one of the streets, he goes down and under um, and you can see there's like, it seems like little shops and like covered like carts and things like that. Um, so you get the sense that there are people down there usually when there's not a giant attack going on in the middle of the night. But um, when they fly over in that aerial shot, we would expect to see a bunch of people moving around and, and things like that. But we, d- we don't because of how it's been carefully designed. Yeah, and then this, this is a, the point in the movie where, where things do get quite fast paced and i think if you compare like the think of the movie as, as different acts this would be like one of the acts where they probably had to like compress and, and cut a lot of things for, from the book like uh if, if you look at the um, yeah the, the past arrival in, in iraq is there there's for example no um the, there isn't the the dinner the banquet scene that there isn't the confrontation between uh, lady jessica and Tufer hawat which uh Sam, you, you were mentioning earlier we, we do get that look so it's it's inferred that there is uh some distrust between the, the two of them but we don't we don't get to see that played out and for example also uh later scenes with like the the drunk uh, duncan idaho so that's also a detail that, that that's not here but we do get to, to see quite quite a lot and it, it plays out quite quickly so we immediately like have the uh, on arrival, the conversation with uh, with Duke Leto and uh, and Gurney, and you know you 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 get the the picture of the, the two moons and you know how that's uh, wrecking havoc on their their communications. 
uh, how the, the city is actually quite quite quiet. And you see that they are already talking about the strategy. How can we defend this? There, there are some vulnerabilities. They have to protect the, the spaceport. They have to uh, protect the spice refineries. So there, there's already like a, a lot of information that, that you get like uh, shortly after their arrival. It's great storytelling once again, because you, like you said, Marcus, it explains, okay, if someone was going to attack, allegedly, this is how they could get away with it. So it's telling the audience, like, pay attention to this because, you know, in about 20 minutes, we're going to get an attack. Telling the audience something, but not dumbing it down. The scene with the shout out mates. Uh, so in the book, we had a bit more explanation before, like Jessica was informed, like who, who it was, but here she basically walked out into the room and she singled out, uh, shout out mates and, you know, had the rest of them leave. Uh, Garen, how do you think uh, that scene played out? I actually really liked the, the authentic feeling I get from the shout out mates that, that she is a very fervent religious believer. Um, at first when you know, she's having this interaction, you know, with Jessica. I love, I love Jessica's hands, hand signals, which, which I, I think we've learned now was actually a suggestion from Rebecca Ferguson. And she actually designed some of the hand signals is, is what I've learned. I think that was super authentic, a, a real homage to the book, right? Because that's a big part of the book. But I love the fact that I'm, I'm looking at this woman and She's like having this religious experience as she's handing the Chris knife, you know, to, to the lady Jessica. And, and she kind of starts, it's like she's moaning kind of this, uh, this exuberant, like the revelatory moment that she's having. And she, she says something to the effect of when you finally see revelation happening, it's, it's overwhelming or whatever her words are exactly. And, and so I think this is a really key moment where we're learning more about the Fremen and we're seeing this religious fervor in these people that is, it's like, they don't disbelieve these superstitions at all. They believe them to the hilt. And, and so I love that establishment. And, and I just love, this is another Lady Jessica Benny Jezera moment where you see her in complete control of this potentially dangerous situation because she's calling out that the shout out has a weapon. And, and then she tells her, you know, uh, you don't want to do this. It won't go well for you, but, but she stays calm. She stays in control of the situation. So um, I think this is just a, a great establishing moment that, that is sort of beyond that the, the shout out is the housekeeper. That's sort of an ancillary piece. It's, it's telling us a lot more about Jessica and the Fremen. Yeah. And then we have, um, after the shout-up uh, Mape scene, we have the, the scene where where Paul goes outside, and it's, it's basically at the, at a point when when the sun is really high and, and it's bright, and uh, he basically walks in the courtyard and sees a palm tree, and there's a couple of things going on because you also have like the crowds of people who are standing outside. Like I guess that's like a one quick quick glimpse we get to see of like uh, life in the city, although it's mentioned that those are pilgrims. Um, so uh, Johnny, how do you think that they handle this this scene with the with the palm trees? Uh, well, the transition I have to start with from the shout out Mapes kind of religious moment and experience that she has with Jessica. And then the way it goes from that into the other Fremen, the pilgrims outside praying. They had, you know, they're the, the costumes again are amazing. Um, you see that the blue eyes, the eyes of Abad, um, 
clearly for the first time. Um, and then it, it moves outside and it moves into the palm trees. And then you see Paul walking over and it just, it just builds up the world a little bit more. It builds up a little bit more of, it builds up Paul as a character because he's kind of like, he's showing interest in the culture. He's showing interest in these people. Um, he's, you know, I love the line. It always makes me laugh where he's like, um, well, they're outside. <laughs> like why, why, why can't I be out here? Um, and so I thought that was great. And then of course there's the moment where he says, well, shouldn't we, you know, shouldn't we not get rid of the trees? Should we not save water and use it for, you know, cause it, once he hears it in the context of these lives that could be using it, which we know from the book is a big you know, point of contention. Well, why don't we get rid of them? Um, and also this, this little act, the actor, the bit actor for the scene, I thought he was just great. His little banter back and forth with Paul and the way he kind of explains it. Um, I, I just thought that was really strong in the way that it concludes with him talking about, well, it's like a, a dream, like, and it alludes to the fact that there was this notion or idea at one point that they could change Arrakis um, into a different, you know, through terraforming into a different, you know, world full of water and plants and, and all that. Um, so that for me, especially as a book reader, I don't know, you know, for anyone else who hasn't read the book, I don't know what exactly they would think of that necessarily, but I really like that one because it, for the world and for Paul, I thought it was important. And then the next scene that we, we get into is uh, where, where Paul is, uh, is, is back in, in his room. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's looking at the, the, the film, film book, which we've, we've touched on earlier, and there's the Hunter Seeker. Um, so, uh, Garen, how, uh, what was your thoughts about, like, first the film book and then, like, how they portrayed the Hunter Seeker? Uh, I thought the film book was absolutely ingenious because even though I had read the books many times, I, I could never quite picture in my mind what was meant by film book. Of course, in 1965, a film book probably in Frank Herbert's mind was something like a talking book with a screen on it or something, you know, who knows, but um, I just thought it was a brilliant idea to have this 3d projected, you know, kind of image. And, and I, I love, not only do I love the tech part of it, I love the look on Paul's face. Chalamet nails this where his eyes kind of like that look of my kids when they've been looking at their phone too long, you know, it's like, it's like, they're just sort of really into the thing they're watching and nothing could distract them. You know, he had that look on his face. So it just was very realistic to me. I thought the hunter seeker. So when, of course, I know it's coming in this moment, I know what's happening here. And, and you see, you know, uh, a laser or something carve out this little hole in the, in the bass relief of the wall. And then you see it coming out. And I, you know, all I've ever really had to kind of base off this is my own vision in the book. And then the Lynch movie for the most part, and when it came out, I was like, well, wait a minute, <laughs> is that a, what is that thing? You know, I, I kind of was thrown off by the design of it. Um, almost wondering, are people going to think that's like real or are they going to understand this is a, a mechanical deadly device being controlled by a human? But the design of it is really interesting because it does have kind of a bug-like design, but very clearly the way the, the little legs kind of dangle out, you know, as it comes out of the hole, you're like, oh, okay, this is this is not exactly, this is not something that is natural. Um, but I, I loved the introduction of the idea of Paul moves into the projection of the, of the bush almost to 
to hide himself, even though that's not going to work in this case. But I just thought that was brilliant from a cinematic standpoint and, and just creating more of a, of a dynamic scene. And then when Paul stops it and crushes it, and then he opens it at his hand, then very clearly it's, it's, it's mechanical, right? Cause it's, it's sparking and, and smoking. So yeah, although at first I was a little thrown, I was like, wait a minute, what have they done here? And then I realized, oh, okay. It's made to look like something natural, but it's it's mechanical. Also, the first appearance of a little mouse that's not a Disney character. <laughs> yeah, and then of course, uh, immediately after, after that scene, we we immediately see the, the consequences of of what happened. So that we see the the Harkonnen who had been basically like uh, buried alive in, in a wall and what was was controlling it. So we see the, the sabotage that, that that's going on, where <laughs> Tuvo Howard is obviously very very nervous. <laughs> And uh, goes and uh, you know he wants to hand his, his recognition to uh, to Duke Leto. Uh, Simon, what, what did you think about uh, the interaction between those characters? So I felt Oscar Isaac was just being dad there, and he was. He was like, I don't care if you want to resign. My son was going to get assassinated. Like we can talk about you know turning in your paperwork later. Why is my son getting assassinated? Like where is this coming from? You know, and he's just like, I'm sorry, my lord. You know, like I messed up. I I thought once again, what limited time we have with Oscar Isaac in this movie, really, every scene he's great in. You know, and it's it's perfection. We immediately have the like the consequences of that scene. And I, I love how they've been handling the transitions between the different uh, planets here, because the last time we, we had the, you know, the, the training room uh, scene where, where, where Paul and Gurney were, were fighting and you have like Gurney talking about, you know, how brittle the, the Harkonnens are. And then, you know, you, you, uh, you're taken to Giddy Prime. And then again, here you see like, you know, the Harkonnens have been sabotaging, they've almost killed Paul. And then now we, we go really to, to Giddy Prime. And it's, it's actually an, an interesting uh, situation because we actually see Reverend Mother Mohayam, she's uh, going to uh, Giddy Prime, which is which I, th- I thought was was interesting how, how they played it out. So we have that that interesting uh, conversation and we have, um, yeah, there, there's, there's so much uh, details in, in, in that scene. Uh, start start with, with you, Johnny, like what did you take out of the, that, that scene? First off, I love the aesthetics of this, of Getty Prime in general, but this room in particular is just like, it's got this weird <laughs> alien slimy kind of feel to it. But um, are you talking uh, about the spider in the room? Uh, well, of course we do have a giant spider <laughs> hand cr- uh, critter thing going on. I, I would love to know, you know, how did they, first off, how did they decide there was going to be a pet of, or a creature of some sort? And then once they decided on that, when did they decide, okay, this is what it's going to be. And it's going to look like this. And it's going to act like this. Oh, and we're going to get this actor to come and play it and do the movements and actually, you know, build off of that with some CG. Um, That was certainly not anything I was expecting. Um, But I, you know, I just love that, that little detail. Cause again, it kind of builds out the world a little bit. Like it's a creepy, you know, it's kind of, unnecessary to what's going on in the, in that, in that moment, um, you know, leading into the scene, but it's like, Oh my God, like that is <laughs> so creepy and disturbing. And like in a very uncanny kind of terrifying way, because it's, it's clearly not, you know, it, it, it's not a person, but it's, it's human in some regard because it has human hands 
four feet and it has its head that you can see at the far end away from the camera. It looks like it has a human shaped head and it's eating like a, with a human shaped mouth and everything. So very, very creepy, very disturbing shows you, you know, the Harkonnens are up to some nasty uh, stuff. And uh, um, of course it also adds that little moment of kind of like almost like levity where the Reverend mother you know, Piter's trying to tell her, oh, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to understand your language or whatever. And then she, of course, is like snaps at it and is like, get out. Um, and it starts to move away all creepy. And and she's like, oh, it understands. Um, so I thought that was great. And uh, just kind of automatically reminds you that the Reverend Mother is really, really the boss of everyone that, you know, that she's not there to be uh, played by the Baron or any of the Harkonnens. And, uh, and then, of course, there's also this really cool um, silencer kind of, uh, I don't know how you would describe it, like a, a cloaking device uh, for sound that, that drops on them. And that makes sure that no one outside of the, the, those three hears the details about how the emperor is plotting with them, is going to give them Sardaukar to go to Arrakis to attack them. And in the book, of course, for anyone that's read the book, we know that the Sardaukar... And the emperor, he wants to be totally secret about the fact that he's helping the baron. That would be politically c- catastrophic if that was to be found out, of course. So uh, in this instance on, on Getty Prime, they use that, that silencer device. And then they mention during the scene, the baron says, you know, there's no satellites over Arrakis. No one is going to find out about this. Um, it's going to be completely off the books. And so, you know, for example, in the book, we, the Sardar car, they dress up as Harkonnens, right? And so they're wearing their uniforms. But in the movie, they're not. They're wearing their own typical Imperial uniforms. And I think that was the best way to go because, and giving those little lines of dialogue to explain why no one else would find out about it. Um, I thought that was just easier because, again, you're changing the medium. In the book, you can read, oh, it's clearly Sardar car. They're wearing another costume. In this, it's like, how are you going to expect anyone who knows nothing about this world to look at these people wearing the same exact thing and be like, Oh yeah, that's who that is. Um, So I thought that little bit of dialogue was key. And then of course, once she leaves, there's the back and forth between Piter that I liked where it it emphasizes that, well, they are kind of scared of the Reverend mother because they know that she's a truth sayer. They know that they can get the truth out of them if it comes to that. Um, and that comes back later on once they take Paul and Jessica as, as captives, they can't kill them. Technically they can't do it with their own hand. And I thought that was such a smart way. And of course this is in the book as well. Um, but you know, in, in a lot of movies like this action movies or whatever action adventure movies, you know, the bad guys, they should just kill the good guys. Why do they have them prisoner? They could escape they could not, you know, they could somehow survive. Why leave it to chance? Why tie them up to a bomb or anything like that? But in this, there's a valid, you know, actual reason why they can't kill them because they made a promise to the Reverend Mother. So to keep that promise, they, are, they do keep them captive. They do, but you know, gag them and they say they're going to take them out to the desert. And of course, the Baron, you know, my, my Dune, my Arrakis, um, where he floats up and we get to see his suspensors in action for the first time which again is a great effect, looks awesome. Um, and the music that kicks in as well. I just thought this was a great, this is the last piece that we see on Getty Prime, at least until the next movie. I thought it was really effective and, and really sets the plot from that there on into motion into the attack. One of the craziest notions I've heard about this scene, because you know, it's the internet, 
and the internet's crazy sometimes, that Spirethin is Yuri's wife and they're experimenting on her. I'm like, all right, internet, calm down. Um, I will say the first time seeing it, when the spider shows up, I agree with Johnny. It gives you that creepy, like, wait, wh- what is going on here? Like, I don't feel comfortable watching this. It gives you that eerie vibe that I feel like the Harkonnens live off of. You shouldn't feel comfortable in front of any of them, especially in front of the Baron. I like this scene. Like we said, it's not in the book, but I feel like it's important because once again, it introduces that the Benny Jesuit are working behind the scenes and they're the ones that control pretty much the whole universe. You know, in the Lynch movie, we have that whole entire line. He who controls the spice controls the universe. Well, I think it's the Benny Jesuit and it's proven in the books and in this movie. And I've said this before, but Piter is the standout performance for me in this whole entire movie. I wish we had more. Yeah, and th- th- this this scene, I think it illustrates what we were we were saying before, that um, like obviously, you know, if, if they were going to include every single scene from the book, if they were going to go into detail in every aspect, you know, the, the film would be much longer and it wouldn't be realistic to, uh, you know, to, to release it uh, theatrically. Um, but for, for people who have read the book uh, and for people who have read some of the, you know, expanded books, like the, the prequels, again, like n- none of that is, is necessary. But if you have happened to read those, those books, this scene has so much uh, additional depth. So I, I won't spoil it, but like you, you have the, um, where, where basically um, uh, the Reverend Mother is, is saying that, you know, like that uh, Jessica and by extension, uh, Paul is, uh, you know, under the protection of the order. So, you know, you, you better not touch them. And uh, how the bearer responds, you know, like, I would never dream of, of violating the sanctity of, of your order. But if you know the whole story, you know that he he has <laughs> definitely uh, violated the, the benefits before. Um, so that it really has like a, a lot of, um, yeah, j- just, just a lot going on beneath the surface of the scene. And, and again, like you don't have to pick up all of this, but like for people who have, you know, uh, gone deep into the Dune lore, it's, it's like all this additional inf- information that it's, it's, it's really, uh, yeah, the, you, you can tell that Denis, he, he's, he's a big fan and he's, he's really gone into detail and that the state as well has, has also been, been involved in this. Okay, so that's that's all for today. Uh, so we're, uh, we're we're getting uh, further into movie. Next next week we're going to continue on uh, on Arrakis with the spice harvester scene and uh, an attack. So there will be a lot to explore there, including the dreams. Uh, so really excited to talk about uh, that. Uh, Garen, where can people find you? Hey, it's Garen at uh, Dune Companion on Twitter. Find me there, and uh, we'll talk to you real soon. And I'm Johnny Sobchak, of course. You can find me on Twitter, Johnny Sobchak. Um, yeah, more, more buzz about this movie. Loving it. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, hearing everyone else's thoughts. You know, please do leave a comment. I, you know, need, I need to get into the comment section more and, just, and have some discussion and whatnot. And I look forward to doing that as we get deeper into the movie. Hey, Simon here. Uh, follow me on social if you want, S. Dowdy. And also remember to like and subscribe and hit that smash button. Sorry, I had to be that YouTuber. I had to do it once. Uh, I won't do it for another 20 shows. <laughs> yeah, this, this is uh, Marcus Gabriel. Uh, you can find me on dunewsnet.com and dunewsnet on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, yeah, looking forward to talking to you uh, next week as we continue our movie review series. We hope you've enjoyed Dune Talk. Remember to like, 
subscribe, and turn on notifications so you know when the next episode drops. Stay tuned to dunenewsnet.com and add us to your social feeds. Be the first to hear breaking news and reviews.